You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Uh, We continue our study through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the Lord Jesus, His life, who He was, His ministry, through the particular lens of the Gentile physician and historian, Luke. Uh, We look this morning specifically at Jesus' call and selection of the 12 apostles who would be the the mouthpiece for the church and the gospel upon which the new community of God would be built. Let's read verses 12 through 19 together. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you today for life. God, we thank you. Uh, for the gift of mothers as our nation in particular celebrates the gift of mothers and motherhood this weekend. God, we pray and ask that you would open your word to us in a way that allows us to receive it the way that those throughout history have and even the writers of scripture themselves as they speak of the delight, the beauty, the joy, the goodness of your law, of your word. Father, use it to transform us, to knit us together into the people you desire us to be. God, to bring restoration where there's brokenness in our lives individually and in our relationships. Father, speak to us this morning. We long to hear from you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I think one of the things that we are apt to do if we look at a passage like this, and we won't work through verses uh, 17 to 19 this morning, but they're important for uh, for context. But if, if you read this passage, 
without reading it in the wider context of the Bible, which is always the case, but uh, specifically uh, in this passage, you're likely to miss a good part of the significance of what Jesus is doing here. If you look back at, at verse 12 and just scan it briefly, you see that that Jesus goes up onto a mountainside and he spends the night with God. And he calls his disciples to him on that mountainside and selects 12 to be apostles, to be heralds of the gospel, to be the leading voices of the message that will form this new community that God is creating in and through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain in verse 17. And in verses 20 and following, which we will begin looking at next week, he gives them the word of God. Now, some of you who are more versed in Scripture can recall a time when this has happened before. We've seen this before. We see it particularly in the book of Exodus, where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God arranges the 12 tribes of Israel around and Moses spends time with God and then he comes down the mountain and gives them the law of God. And it's interesting if you ask just why was the law of God given to the people of God? What was the purpose of it? The, the popular answer, kind of the, the word on the street is that, well, that's how they were made right with God in Old Testament days. God had given them their law, they obeyed the law, and through their obedience were brought into a right standing with God. But that's not true at all, actually. Uh, and when you read the narrative account in Exodus, uh, you see very clearly that it was after God had delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt, that God gives his law to them. That great exodus which stands as the Old Testament picture of redemption and salvation for us. It was centuries after God had come to Abraham and drawn Abraham into a covenant relationship, Abraham and his descendants to come, that God gives his people the law. What God is doing through the law and the giving of the law in Sinai is saying, I'm going to make you into a new people. I'm going to create in you a covenant people, a picture of what it means to be my people, a new community, a true human community to reflect my image and my goodness to the world. And we know that Israel messed that up over and over and over and over again. But part of the reason that when you and I look around, we see the absolute unra unraveling of human community all around us every day is because our relationship with God has unraveled. And that's, in a sense, what God is saying throughout Exodus is when your relationship with me is unraveled through your sin, your relationship with everyone else is unraveled as well. I was thinking the other day, I'd gone through uh, a drive through and gotten a little bit to eat, and I was pulled over listening to a podcast and eating um, in my truck like God intends us to receive food. And it was odd. For the first time, I, I thought, I hope no one walks up to me randomly and shoots me 
while I'm sitting in my truck eating. But that's the news in our day, is it not? That's where we live. There's brokenness everywhere. It's a certainty that individuals are at war with individuals, families with families, tribes with tribes, nations with nations throughout history. And what God says in Exodus and throughout his word is that when your relationship with him is unraveled, your relationship with everyone else is unraveled. And accordingly, when your relationship with him is restored, your relationship to other human beings is restored as well. And what we're beginning to look at this morning is Jesus bringing of the word of God in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll get to next week, the shorter version here in Luke, the longer version in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's to say, this is what life in this new community looks like. This is what it's characterized by. This is how it operates. This is, this is how we as his church show to the world what it looks like to have a relationship restored with God. And when that is restored, in the words of Tim Keller, all other human unraveling is woven back together again into the fabric of life that God intends. And local church community and why local church membership matters so much is we are to, to walk in fellowship with one another, engaging in obedience to one another's that we see throughout the New Testament as we love one another, as we forgive one another, as we encourage one another, as we bear one another's burdens as a testimony to the world that this is what human thriving and the new community that God is creating on earth looks like among a people who've been restored in their relationship with God. And I will say this, of course, the first place that this restoration should take place is in the home, is in the life of the family. Mother's Day is, is always a, a bittersweet time. I don't know that it can be anything else. There are always those among us who are longing or maybe have long throughout their life um, to give birth to a child or to children and have just not been able to do so and have wondered at the providence of God in that. There are always, as there are this morning, those who have recently lost their mothers or lost their mothers um, between this time last year and today. And then there's the sweetness and the delight of the gift of mothers and of motherhood and of women in general to a society, to families, to the community of Christ. It's amazing. I was thinking last night as I was not sleeping, wondering how bad I would mess today up for Sharon. It was amazing as I was thinking about all that she does, how much mothers do in families. The amount of scheduling, the amount of appointments, the dealing with doctors, with groceries, with um, kids and their events and sports, with the running of the home, with uh, parts of the finances and the bills and the laundry and discipline and everything that is involved. It is significant. It's significant. It's like running a small business with no thanks and no salary. Sometimes the opposite of thanks. When you are redeemed by God, that filters into your household. So that when non-believers are in your home, and hopefully they are from time to time, 
They're watching the way that you relate to others in your home. And it's just different because there's a different power available to you in the Holy Spirit than is available to them who've not been reconciled to God yet. But it's important that you know this, and this is what Jesus is, is re, um, repainting here in this picture of him coming down from the mountain and then giving the law of God, the word of God to the people in the Sermon on the Mount is that when you're redeemed and restored in your relationship with God, you're not just forgiven of your individual sins, but you're redeemed into a new community, a true community. And so what Jesus is doing here in verse 12 and the following verses, as he gives the Sermon on the Mount, is, is he's going beyond simply giving individual ethical requirements or commands to us as his disciples. He's saying, basically, I'm here to accomplish the next and most significant stage in redemptive history. In the community that God began building at Mount Sinai and Exodus, and you'll notice if you look at verse 17, like I said, I won't say much about it, but I will call your attention to verse 17, that this, this new stage, this forever stage, this significant stage is going to intentionally include both Jews and Gentiles. People from all over Judea and Jerusalem, but also from those in Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile areas. And we get a picture of God redeeming a people from all lands for himself. Jesus is saying, in a sense, I am present with power to create this new community. That's why Lone Ranger, I sort of say Long Ranger, Lone Ranger Christianity is just not a thing. It's just not a thing. I shared with you before uh, when we were living in California, uh, talking with a, a server at Red Robin. We had a, a couple of people in our church that worked there, and so we got to know some of the other servers, and one of them was talking with me one day, and we chatted before, and he said, you know, I'm a Christian, just not an active one. And because I'd had some conversations with him before, I said, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. If you are not an active Christian, my friend, you simply are not a Christian. I would encourage you to ask yourself, on what basis would you claim to be a follower of Jesus? To be saved by Jesus means not simply to have our individual sins forgiven. It does mean that, but it means more. It means to be woven into God's new community as agents of reconciliation, as those who carry this message to others, and as those who are reflecting God's eventual purposes of making all things new in Christ Jesus. And could I just for a minute devotionally challenge you to think about how much community matters, how much we need deep and meaningful relationships in our lives. God has so wired us um, that it's very hard for us to experience anything really fully unless we're sharing it with someone else. You ever notice that, that impulse in you when you experience something really great, you feel like that experience isn't complete until you share it with someone. Whether it's a song or a movie or a place you've been to. Um, if you've been in church for a long time, maybe all of your life, you grew up as a church kid, you have at one time or another experienced um, what happens in a church when a group from the church go to do a short-term mission trip or mission work uh, somewhere and then come back and you weren't a part of that. But when they come back, they pull you aside and talk to you 
uh, sometimes in such a way that you wonder if you're even saved since you weren't with them on that trip. But part of what's going on is they've had an experience that isn't complete, even sharing it simply with those that they were with. But they need to share it beyond. God has wired us this way. We're built this way. Uh, You'll notice if you go to our website or our app that registration is open for summer home groups this summer. How many of you were a part of home groups last summer? Man, that's, that's a lot of you in here. Good. I hope you'll do the same thing this summer as we go through the book of Genesis. Sermon-based summer home groups. You don't have to prepare to be there. Um, it'd be helpful if you've at least listened to the message if you weren't here. Uh, but you can go in cold, right? Um, and the whole point is to uh, give us a period of time, eight weeks long, for us to gather together in homes relationally. And what was so interesting last summer was to hear the testimony of some of you say, uh, things like this, I, I have known this guy or, or this gal for years. We've been members here for a long time. But I know them differently now just after these eight weeks together. Because God does something different in home environments when we gather together around his word and in his name. It matters. I encourage you to go to the website, to go to the app, and to register for home groups this summer. Let's look a little more specifically, with the context of Exodus in the background at verses 12 through 16. One of those days, Luke says, Luke is not specific here. He's not so concerned with you and I knowing chronologically exactly what happened when and after what. He's very careful how he puts this together, but he does it like all biographers always do their work. He does it according to the message that God is telling through him. So he just simply says, one of those days, as Jesus was ministering, he went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And the way that the wording is is organized here, constructed originally, gives us this idea that Jesus was positioning himself conversationally to be listening to his heavenly Father. And it reminds us that this new community that we're a part of in the local church And the church Big C throughout the world finds its source in the sovereignty and the power of God. Not in human wisdom or human building. Jesus goes to his heavenly Father. And Luke presents this many times throughout his gospel of Luke going to his heavenly, of Jesus going to his heavenly Father before significant decisions or at significant times in his ministry. He spent the night in prayer with God. You ever ever find it difficult to pray? You find it hard to pray consistently or for any length of time? I certainly do. I experience that. It's interesting to see um, and to hear and to read the thoughts of uh, pastors who are extremely well-known and have done their run faithfully and with much fruit bearing across the decades, almost without question say at the end, if they could go back, one of the things they would do more at the top of their list or differently is they would spend more time praying. We know we need to be in prayer. Don't worry, I'm I'm not about to do a guilt thing or take off on a tangent, make this a topical message on prayer. I don't know about you, but guilt doesn't motivate very long or very well. But I think there's something in us That for most of us, there are some people who are just gifted by God. 
it seems. He's just got their thumb on them when it comes to prayer. And they're a gift to a church. After you've been in a church for a number of years as a pastor, you're able to kind of begin identifying some of them. Um, and that's who you go to. That's who you send prayer requests to. Um, because you've seen their faithfulness and power in prayer. For most of us, we'd almost rather do anything than pray. We'd rather study than pray. We'd rather serve than pray. We'd rather preach than pray. Prayer is the hardest and probably the most fruitful work in the life of any believer. But I, want, I would like to level the field, and I, I want you to be honest. So if it's not for you, that's fine. But how many of you, just by show of hands, would say you find it difficult to pray, to pray well, to pray consistently? Look around. That's a lot of us. This is a, this is a regular issue with followers of Jesus in all times and all places. But I wonder sometimes in the words of the old hymn, how many burdens we've needlessly borne because we've failed to carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus goes. He spends the night with his father in prayer. And then in verse 13, when morning came, and it came for him like it comes for us. The, the sun comes up. There's a coolness in the morning except in Texas, but in places blessed by the Lord. There's a coolness in the morning, a mist. Sun comes up on Jesus' day. And we find two action words here. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. And we don't know exactly how this worked, right? But these two words here have have connotations to them biblically. He called his disciples. This word in the Gospels is this picture of the authority of God in and through Christ. That when Christ calls, we come. When Christ calls, we come physically. When Christ calls into a sinful and darkened heart, we come spiritually. And chose 12 of them. This, this great language of choosing which always carries with it the weight of divine election and selection, the sovereign providence of God in selecting who would be the apostles. And it's interesting here, if you, if you study these guys, and you can go from here and do this, I'm sure most of you will do that right after lunch, um, and do word studies on their names, you'll find that most of them are not very significant. And that about half of them made no huge contribution to biblical history that we're aware of. They were normal, average, everyday people. What you'll also notice if you study these lists is that they're arranged a little differently, but Peter always comes first, and Judas Iscariot always comes last. The gospel writers seem to, he seem to hold a, a unanimous disdain for Judas Iscariot. They would differentiate him not only from Judah, son of James, and you know he had to be like, seriously, the guy that will go down in all of redemption history for eternity had to have my name, who's the traitor and betrayer of Jesus. You can imagine him going down to his local Roman office and applying for a change of name. Getting a different name eventually on his chariot license. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never want to leave any confusion 
uh, in the minds of readers about who Judas Iscariot was. But he starts with Peter, and I just want to say, even though these guys are average, run-of-the-mill, everyday guys, Jesus' selection, his choice was not haphazard or arbitrary. Nor was it selected based on their affinity for one another or sort of shared hobbies like we tend to do everything. You get Simon Peter here and you get Thomas. Peter who by any, um, by, by any glance was self-assured, confident, and an optimist. You get Thomas here who tended to be a pessimist, full of doubt, unsure of himself. You can imagine Thomas as Jesus or someone speaking on Jesus' behalf that Jesus had delegated this to says, Thomas. And Thomas goes, me? He can't mean me. I'm not even sure what's going on here. Peter would have run right up there and said, I knew that was coming. First, doesn't surprise me at all. You look at his brother Andrew. When you look at the Gospels, you realize that Andrew was actually called to follow Jesus before Peter. And then Andrew runs and finds his brother and says, man, I think I, think I found the one that we've been looking for. I wonder if Andrew ever felt kind of passed over as Peter rose to prominence quickly in the group of disciples. You ever felt that way? You ever felt simply uh, overshadowed by someone else? Maybe a sibling, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, a classmate who you just seem never to get out from the shadow of. These were real men with real foibles and real doubts and real struggles. You get Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And I know many of you know this. Simon the Zealot had no use for Rome. No use for their governance over them. Matthew cooperated with them. Raised money for them so that he could enrich his own comfortable life. These guys would have had nothing in common at all. And at least Simon for Matthew would have had a real hatred of him. Yet Jesus calls these two to be apostles from among the disciples. Part of what I think is important for us to understand as we look at this and we think about being brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want to say something to you here. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again by God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are brothers and sisters with all other Christians in the world. It's not something that you're trying to be. It's not something um, that you're considering or wondering how you might go about that. You simply are. We simply are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is something that Christ has done. It is something he has accomplished, not something that we do. And part of what we see here is the, the reality that God's new community is not formed along political or racial or national lines. The kingdom of God is bought with, purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. And part of what Jesus is doing then the, the, the evening before he begins his journey to the cross is he pleads with the Heavenly Father that we might have unity is revealed to us that that when you and I get crossed with one another and we put other things before our shared brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ, 
We're showing unbelievable disrespect and disregard for the precious blood of Jesus that has forgiven us, redeemed us, and brought us together in a new spiritual family. We may not have anything in common politically. We may not have anything in common racially or ethnically or in terms of background or experience. But in Christ, we have all things in common that matter. Uh, Last night I was laughing in the kitchen as Cade and a friend of his were standing in there. Cade, my son, who is white, and his friend who spent the night with us, who is black, and they were quizzing each other on what it would be like to show up at a, at a cookout. So Turner was quizzing Cade on how much he knew about what it would be like to show up to a black cookout, and Cade was quizzing Turner on how much he knew about what it would be like to show up to a, a white cookout, or at least like a, a country ranching family cookout like we have. And it was so funny to listen to him going back and forth, laughing at one another. And Turner said, uh, if, if the cookout starts at 12, what, what time are you going to show up, Cade? And Cade said, 11.30. And Turner said, brother, this is a black cookout, not a white cookout. What time are you going to show up? Cade says, I don't know. He said, 1.30. So sh- First of all, it's not going to start before then. And if you show up before then, you have to work. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun going back and forth with that. Turner also said, hey, if, if, uh, if aunt or uncle call you, and say, hey, where are you? And you say, I'm just around the corner. Be there in five minutes. Where are you actually at? And I said, 15 minutes away? He said, no, you're at the house. It's like, huh, you haven't left yet. But it's amazing the relational strength that we have together in Christ that overcomes everything else. And it begins right here in God's sovereign choosing of the specific apostles that he chose to demonstrate to the world that in him there's a unity that supersedes and exceeds all other human divisions. As the band begins to make their way up here and lead us in a time of worship as we reflect and respond to God, I want to read a quote to you by that great preacher and expositor J.C. Ryle that he wrote while working through this portion of Luke in 1858. 1858. He said, with a doctrine most unpalatable to the natural heart, with nothing whatsoever to bribe or compel obedience, a few lowly Galileans shook the world and change the face of the Roman Empire. One thing alone can account of this, the gospel of Christ, which these men proclaimed was the truth of God. J.C. Ryle was exactly right. When you look at this list of men and you look at their close following of Jesus, the ups and the downs, the disagreements they had with one another, the vying for power at times between them and even beyond them with family members of theirs, the inability to understand what Jesus was doing, even though they were following him day in and day out, day in and day out, sometimes even their inability to understand once Jesus had explained it to them. 
No stature from a human standpoint. No power. No wealth. You have to conclude, if you're a thinking person, that the power rested in the message they carried. And the truth of that message. That should be good news and comfort to us this morning. Because most of us are living normal, ordinary lives. We're going to die one day, all of us in here. And we're not going to long be remembered. And sometimes we can get discouraged. Sometimes you can get discouraged. Get discouraged. And wonder what purpose or significance your life has anyway. You can't reach the world. You alone can't reach your city. You alone can't reach your neighborhood. Sometimes you feel like you alone can't really permeate and reach and influence your own household. With the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus calls us to is faithfulness. He'll handle the fruitfulness. He calls us to faithfulness. And the same Jesus who called these 12 men out of a a wider group of people who were following him is still calling men and women to himself today. To be received and redeemed by the Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus by God's grace. To be restored in relationship with God and in relationship with others. Being able then, as we'll see in the coming weeks, to truly love, pray for, and yearn for the best for enemies. Be able to forgive those quickly and fully who've harmed you. To be able to live in relational unity with brothers and sisters in Christ who you share very little with, humanly speaking, in common. Have you heard that call of Christ? I hope if you haven't, you will this morning. Let me ask you to stand. On this Mother's Day, when our nation remembers and celebrates the gift of moms, I hope that you will do the same today, and I hope that you will thank God for the gift of moms. Thank God for the gift of women in our world and in the church and in your life. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us, and as I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. When I finish praying, they'll pass the buckets, and we'll receive offering. For those of you who give on Sunday morning as opposed to throughout the week online or by text, you can drop in those connection cards. If you need more time with either, keep those with you and um, place them in any of the drop drop boxes on the walls as you leave. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you not only modeled perfect obedience and submission, purpose of God for us, but Lord Jesus, through your broken body and blood, through the faithfulness of God in your resurrection, you give us the power to walk in obedience. Lord Jesus, you supply to us everything we need to become living examples of the Sermon on the Mount. And God, right now, we just practice one small way that we testify to the world. That we live under a new administration now. 
we live under your lordship as we reflect generosity, sacrifice, financial faithfulness to you, God. So, Lord, I lift up to you now those who've given throughout this week, those who are preparing to give now. God, bless them. I thank you for their faithfulness, God, to the ministry of this church and your wider work in the world. Lord, I thank you for what you do in their lives as they give in obedience to you. Father, we pray all this, trusting it to your good care in Jesus' victorious name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.